This is the Blueberry Conference, and they told me to start on time. And um, so if you're not meaning to go to the Blueberry Conference, this is probably the most appropriate time to pick up and go. So it's great if you want to stay. Um, let's, um, let's just start with a word of prayer because I'm not a public speaker and I need, I need God's leading like all of us do. So let's just bow our heads real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, please guide us and help us to see your spiritual meaning in our work and our daily lives. Help me to share that in the way you would have me to do that. I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Amen. So this is not a blueberry that I grew. Um, but it is, it is a large one. And so we do have a largest blueberry contest on our farm. And we have a U-Pick area. A lot of times contests like that are very meaningful and helpful. This just shows you our blueberries. I am, oh yes, my introduction, thank you. I am Jeff Weejohn, and I am from Washington State, and I am from the dry side of Washington. So I am from Eastern Washington, and, um, and so I guess as that's a part of my talk actually, is who I am, and um, where I live, and what I'm doing. We grow organic blueberries, and we do, the, do this commercially. We started in 1999 with a test plot, and we started growing blueberries um, commercially in 2001. Um, there was no one available in Eastern Washington to process those, so we became, we became a processor by default because there was no one for the other farmers to go to. So it's one of those things where at first, they say, we'll take all your blueberries. We want everything you can get. Of course, everyone wants organic blueberries at first when there's no, none available. So we went through that whole issue where Zirkle, a big company close to us, was willing to pay way more than we were getting on the farm. And so Terry always loves it when I tell this part. But she said, well, how can we afford not to take it to them? I says, we can't afford to take it to them. And so we took a different route, and it was a hard route, and we developed a market ourselves, and we developed a packing ourselves. Within three years, within three years, the, um, the, the Zirkle quit taking blueberries. And all of a sudden, all the farmers had no place to go. We had developed our own packing, we had developed our own markets, and because of that, we were able to um, take on a few farmers, and then as they grew, we kept taking them on. So we have about 20 growers that we pack blueberries for now. So that's probably the, um, that's not something we, we actually sought out, it's just something we, we really got pushed into because of that. So um, little, that's my introduction. This is, um, this is what we grow is blueberries. And we started out as Blueberry Hill Berries. And um, I am a third generation. I'm a third generation uh, farmer that discovered heart and soil 
And the reason why heart and soil is important is because it's a philosophy that I'm going to be explaining to you when we talk about the concept of blueberries. Keeps reverting back. Okay. It's changing on mine, and I'm supposed to be in control, so. Well, as he tries to figure that out, I'll... Yes, go ahead. It's called heart and soil. If you forget, you can look at my head. It's on my hat. Um, it's nothing we sell. It's just something that we have. It's a philosophy we had. And the reason why we do heart and soil, or just to explain heart and soil since I have a minute here, is we believe, and I, I, I think we probably will have, I will probably have some disagreements with some of you here, that chemicals is not the biggest issue, but nutrition is the biggest issue. And I'm not saying that chemicals don't play a part, because chemicals do. When you take chemicals, you can kill the soil. I guess my biggest emphasis is in keeping the soil alive. And the soil is what I'm going to be talking to you about. I know you came here for blueberries, but it's important to understand the soil. But to understand the soil, I, would like, I, I want to explain myself a little bit. And the reason why I've got all this stuff on is I'm going to take it off here because I'm, I'm hot. <laughs> Um, the reason I have it, I have all this stuff on is because it's about farmers. And I guess when we came last time to Adagra, there weren't that many career farmers. And so one of the things I just want to mention at the very beginning is career farmers tend to be billboards for a lot of companies. And we wear hats and we wear vests and we wear things like this and we have all these names that we wear. And um, there's nothing wrong with it, but it gives you the idea that there must be some money in agriculture if, if these companies are giving away so many pieces of clothing and hats and that type of things. Great. Oh. oh, they took it off. Okay. So just tap it. Okay. Okay. So, blueberry hill berries, sorry. So, to finish what I'm saying is... We, 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 we wear things all the time. We become billboards for other people. And we, we really are advertising for everyone else. And the thing is, if you're advertising for everyone else, what are you advertising for? You're advertising for something they're selling. And heart and soil is a different type of philosophy. I'm a third generation farmer that discovered heart and soil and this is my grandfather. He came um, to the United States from Canada. Um, his parents were from Germany. He migrated, well when he was around 14 years old he migrated and um, he was an apple picker and um, that's his dream was to farm, and, um, but he started out picking apples. His name was Irvin Weejohn. He started as a migrant worker. I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. And um, this picture is a picture of my father. 
and um, they were processing peas, and that's a pile of pea remains. And um, so this is, um, a, it is a background to show you that my father, it was in his blood, farming was in his blood. My grandpa really felt like if he could do something and farm, that that would be the most wonderful thing in the world. If he could farm and just be able to provide food for his family. So just want you to understand that that was the background that he would have arrived. And this is just a picture of him. This is a picture of his, his apples that my mother took. And um, he really did provide the, his whole life. He provided food for his family and um, he just loved it. He just loved his life. Um, so anyway, that's my background. So these are the things that we've grown. Alfalfa, alfalfa seed, apples, spearmint, peppermint, mint roots, lima beans, corn, potatoes, concord grapes, peas, grass seeds. I didn't know about peas until I saw this picture. So um, um, grass seed, pinto beans, blueberries, hazelnuts, and hazelnut trees. So I had it had never been spoken of before to me. Um, this is one of the pieces of equipment that we designed um, for grape harvest, for harvesting, um, no, for pruning grapes. Um, it really was a great innovation. It made it so that we got about two tons per average more. But let's talk about blueberries. That's what you're here for. And um, so how many of you understand the philosophy that I'm talking about with heart and soil? Okay. What would you, how would you say it? Life is in the soil. That's a good, that's really good. Life is in the soil. Um, it really is an emphasis. So if you keep that, I mean, if you really remember that one issue, you're going to be more successful with blueberries. You're going to be more successful with, with anything you grow, but it's applying it. So part of the background in applying it is, I want is, is actually, I told you about my dad, and I told you about... My dad's name was Irvin Victor. My, my grandfather's name was Irvin Harrison. My dad went by Bud. You can kind of see why he might do that. His sister named him that. But I told you about them, but I want to tell you about my mom a little bit, because this, this helps explain the heart and soil philosophy. So I came in 85, started farming, and the commercialness of farming is something you just accept. Um, my, my dad in the 50s, Hush and Hush came by, that's a fertilizer dealer, that um, they had a bag of white substance in the back of their pickup. And they said, why don't you try this to farm with? And in 1950, they really hadn't ever used anything like that. And that was nitrogen. Three products we usually spread, and those three products are almost all we use. And because we only use those products commercially, it's commercial because organic farming, it's really the same thing. It may not be for you, it may not be for a lot of little people, but in the commercial world, organic is the same way. You, buy, you get several chemicals, they're organic certified, you apply them. You don't get all the micronutrients, so I am a person that is very much against the, um, what is it called, the water, what is it called? Hydroponics, yes, thank you. I, I'm very much against hydroponics. I know that if you do it in rocks, you get a lot of the micronutrients. 
but I still believe that one of the things that Satan is trying to rob us of is, is the, the, the life, and the life is in the soil, and the soil builds by a microbial action, and you've got to keep that microbial action alive. So I may not have all the technical terms that you need, but I want to tell you how, for blueberries, how you keep the soil alive. Okay, so just uh, just a little bit of background on my mom. My mom had an aquarium and she raised discus fish for four, well, for quite a few years. When I came back, I wanted to do the aquarium, but aquariums are so much work. I don't know if any of you have done aquariums, but you change the water, you filter the water, you have to check the pH, you have to do all these things. And there's all this technical stuff that you have to do. And I was like, how am I going to do this and farm? And, and, you know, and so, so I started looking for a reverse osmosis. I looked for all this filtration system and I started adding up everything. And I, and I came across this one person that said, you don't need any of that. Well, if you've been around like I have for a few years, you've heard a lot of people say those types of things. You don't need anything else. All you need is this one thing. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about reverse osmosis? I was so sold on reverse osmosis. I was, this, is gonna, this is my answer for raising fish without it costing me a lot. So I pursued it, and it's one of these funny things. We had a family reunion where this, where this, piece, of, this piece of equipment that they had was being made. And so we went, to, we went to this, and I went and looked at it, and I go, no, you really mean this is all you need is this one thing to raise fish. And I couldn't believe it. The reason I give you this example, because farming is a lot like that. There are a lot of people that are trying to sell you things. And the only way the tropical fish industry makes it is to sell you all these products so that they can get you coming back. And they don't want, they don't want those products to take care of everything. They just want it to help you for a little while and then have you come back. That's the same way the soil is. And so I ended up getting this product. So it was a biological filter. It skims off the top. It puts it through a medium and you grow this moss and you just take hands full of this moss and throw it away. And it, it, for 14 years, I raised discus fish and I didn't change the water once. So if you know anything about tropical fish, that's blasphemy. It can't happen. Anyone in the tropical fish industry will say that's impossible. He's crazy. And that's the kind of mind frame that you're up against when you start talking about doing things from a creationist point of view instead of an evolutionist point of view. It's really that simple. And I just want you to understand what I faced. And one of the things that introduced me early on when I first started farming, and I had to start to figure out a philosophy that was different. So um, what I want to talk about with blueberries is and I, I know I'm giving you a lot of background, but we, we grew mint in 400 acres and we had rotated with wheat. And we had a feedlot right next to us. And that feedlot provided compost. I had as much compost as I could use. When you grow mint, we get a product left over that's called mint slugs. And the mint slugs is a biomass that is very beneficial for, for farming. So we would take semi-loads of compost, of, of mint slugs, and spread them on the wheat stubble, because it was a rotation. We'd, come, we'd go into wheat, and then we'd come back into mint. 
The reason why I'm telling you this is because we had a, a, an alkaline, slightly alkaline soil, and that soil um, was 50 feet deep. There was no rocks in it. And you would put this on the soil, and we would deep plow it. You would take the plow and turn it over and work it in. And there's, there's all this biomass in there, right? I mean, we spread, I mean, because we have all this extra stuff, we've got to get rid of it, the mint slugs. We have all this compost, and they're giving it to us for free from the feedlot across there. And you just think it would be this beautiful, wonderful thing. We would do that, and the next spring, the next spring, I'm not talking about a crop year, the next spring, you would go and dig in the soil. You couldn't find anything. You couldn't find pieces of straw. You couldn't find mint slugs. You couldn't find compost. It was gone. And the best way I can explain this is bonfire. My soil had a buffer in it, and it was so, it was so much in need for 50 feet of soil, it could just suck all that stuff up, and it was just gone. So I'm just telling you, that's my background. Now, everyone's soil is not the same, but I'm just telling you that as an example, how soil can suck up the nutrients. And so that's where the philosophy that I'm going to be talking to you, one of the reasons why I do things differently. So just, I'm giving you that as a background. So you have to adapt what I'm telling you to your situation. And that's going to be a little bit different, but just understand this, these things of background so that you can apply them properly. So what we're going to talk about is pH and water in this first section. Um, water frequency. The frequency that you water blueberries is probably the simplest and most important thing I can tell you. Don't do it manually. You don't have, I don't care who you are. And I, I, I have growers that come to me all the time. Oh, we can, we can do it. My dad, he's, he doesn't have that much to do and he'll go change the water for me. Don't, don't, it's not, it's not true. Um, this is where you go through some hard things. My dad said, oh, you're, you're way over watering, Jeff. But it's not the quantity of water you put on. It's the, the number of times you put it on. Blueberries are not deep-rooted, so you, they're shallow-rooted. And I started out with a single drip. Um, I started out with a single drip, and I went to a double drip. And this is a... This is a, a a overhead view and there is a drip here and there's a drip here and I staggered the I staggered the emitters they're 18 inches on center they will soak almost everywhere you need to if you have the soil right and we'll, we'll get into that later um, but you need a little bit of water all the time because I'm from a dry area if you're from a wet area you will have to change that for other reasons but even if you're in a wet area, there are times that you need that water. Um, so I would highly recommend that you put a timer on and you have it so you can adjust it during your hot times, during your dry seasons, and figure out when those are because if you don't anticipate and do those, you do harm. Now, this is not my problem, but you can do harm by overwatering too. If the, if the feet are in water, if the feet are in water, you're gonna do damage to blueberries. If they're not moist up here, you're gonna do damage. 
So you want to, I mean, either way you look at it, you, you need, you need, you need a, the right application of, of water. So any questions on that? I know, please. Well, I would say 18 inches. You need to think about. They go really deep, though. Yes, yes. The um, how deep do they go is the question, and the 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 answer really has a lot to do with how you water, how deep they are, and what your soil type is like. But I would say 18 to 24 inches, but they can go out as far as five, six feet if you manage your water right. If you don't have water on a consistent basis, they're not gonna be that prolific. If you have plenty of water, is overhead sprinkling a problem if you have plenty of water? I would say um, not during, for me, not during the hot part of the season when it's 90 to 100 degrees, but yes, it is a problem because it's really hard <laughs> If you have it on a timer and you do it for a very short times, you can do it. A lot of things you just have to adapt because you have an economy that you can't afford to put a different system in. So you're gonna have to adapt and put smaller nozzles in the sprinklers and then have frequency is really important. During, except for during the hot time. If you have a hot time of the year and you wanna cool, then you can do a little bit more water during that time because you're gonna get quite a bit of evaporation. But you want to um, really limit the length of time because you don't want to saturate that soil. What you're doing with saturating the soil is you're killing the soil and you're pushing all the oxygen out and you're making it so the microbes can't work or function at their highest level. So my understanding basically, you want to ensure the soil is wet enough throughout the, you know, pretty much the entire day, but not too wet. Yes, um, it's especially, the question is, is that we want to make sure, assure that the water is adequate through the whole day. Um, it is one of those things that I actually think you should put it on a 24-hour timer and like 20 minutes every hour and then adjust up or down according to your area and your soil type and how it saturates. You don't want, to, if, you, if the soil is being saturated, you're overwatering. But with our hazelnuts, we've learned, it's a similar, similar thing, we've learned 20 minutes every hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, especially during the hot part of the summer. We do back it off in the, in the spring and we back it off in the fall so that it's a shorter amount of time. Um, so, one more question. How does mulch play into this? That's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna be getting into that next. Perfect question, great lead in. So, Actually, mulching and pH, um, I'm going to talk about pH right now. Um, there's a lot of functions that, that, that coexist there. The pH um, of your soil, have any of you heard that the pH has to be 5? No. Okay. Um, the industry standard, I think, is somewhere about 5, 5.1 is where they suggest that you have the pH. I've raised blueberries um, since 99, and we never amended the soil for the pH. Our pH was always about seven. 
So I'm telling you, you can do it without the, the economics of changing that pH. Um, I did not like changing it commercially with some of the products that they were suggesting. So I, I added way too much compost at first and I got my salts way too high. And when you do that, when you get your salts too high, you get some yellowing, you get some problems. I got a lot of growth, but eventually I did run into some problems and I, I, I ended up having a product that I searched out to find and I found it, but it wasn't organic certified, mostly because they, if you find some good, a lot of times you find good products that the people can't afford to get them certified organic. And I was moving into organic actually after, because of my heart and soil philosophy, I was moving from conventional to organic just because of the affordability. Um, I do have more of a heart and soil concept than I do organic philosophy. Um, so that is my background, but I, the economics forced me to really need to move into organic to help pay for everything that I was doing for the soil. Um, so the pH, and we're talking about um, adjusting it down to 5.1. If you have your organic matter, if you have your microbial action, if you have the soil, a living soil, it can overcome that. One of the reasons why is because the type of fungi that grows at the 5% um, helps provide a lot of the symbiosis of the food chain going to your roots. And um, there are other ways. My point is I've proven there are other ways to accomplish this. There's not only one way to do it. So the reason why that's important to you is is this is not a cookbook where you can just write everything down that I'm saying. You need to understand the philosophy I'm talking to you about. Because if you understand the philosophy, the philosophy is you're feeding the soil. Keep the soil alive and you're going to have something that grows well. So if you wanted to say or educate yourself to what pH does for the soil, it grows... It's, it's a fungi. Um, I don't know. Do you know what the fungi is? It's, it's in the blueberry... I, because... It's, it's a micro, micro, microbial, my cortisone, okay. Anyway, I'm not, it, it grows the fungi that actually, it, and it actually mines the soil around, and that mining brings the nutrients your, your, your roots need and your plant needs to the root. So I guess really what I'm doing is I'm using a different, a different system, and which is not a typical system from, from the wet climates. So my point is this, is that as a creationist, you can discover and find other ways to accomplish similar goals, and you need to apply some of these things that I'm talking about in those terms. I'm going to try to get to the mulching here in a second. Can you tell us these things? Is it find yes. I'm gonna, that's part of what I'm, I'm leading up to. She asked if I can tell you about this, and it is, I'm, I, I have it. I'm going to get to it in a little bit. So, okay. Mounding. Mounding is really important. And in our area, we do not have the problem with drainage that they do in Oregon. So we went through a whole philosophy of saying you don't, don't need to mound. And so I discovered it is very beneficial to mound even if you don't have an issue with um, too much water. 
because they said, well, the only reason why in Oregon, why they mound is because it helps drainage. And it's true during certain times of the year, there's so much water that you need, the, you need better drainage, so you mound. And it really helps for that purpose. But um, I've also learned that when, when you're just starting a new bed, taking all that soil that has a microbial action right there in the top and combining it all together and putting it all together is very beneficial for, the, for beginning. So you, you've got, if you've treated your soil the way I'm talking about, then you have that all in one area and it's all the best soil. You've taken it and you've mounted it up and put it together. So this is not the philosophy of, of deep plowing and then making a mound, which is what a lot of commercial people do. This is taking your soil and taking that top living soil that's the best soil and putting it all together in a mound. So that's really the, the important part uh, of the philosophy and, and getting things started. It's really nice to use some compost. Um, you don't want to use something, you want to make sure it's not like just steer manure that hasn't been um, really composted. It's really a lot better if you, if you find someone that, what I, I use a product that is a mix of mint, mint slugs and, and, and cow manure and a whole bunch of other different wastes and he turns it a bunch of times and it makes a really nice dry, mellow product. Um, you're not paying for the tonnage. When you get a really wet one, you're paying for a lot of water. And so the fact that he, it has, especially since I'm gonna tell you about some microbes, microbes that I use, um, I, I don't, I'm not so worried about that. I just want a good environment. So that, that compost or composted manure, mint slugs, that type of thing, that really helps get started. And I incorporate that in with a little bit of sawdust and usually, preferably you use fur. Um, you never want to use cedar with, um, with, with blueberries. Um, fur, fur is um, preferred. If you use pine, actually, I've never used pine, but I've been told that if you take pine sawdust and you age it, in other words, put it outside, Put, put water on it, let the sun get it, get some of those, get some of the, the toxins out. Um, and I'm speaking from a nursery because we also run a nursery and we use fur in the nursery, but you, I've, there are other nurseries that use pine and they, um, they actually go through a process and they hold it for a year and they get it, they turn it and they let the, some of the, the go ahead, question. Okay, the question is, is explain the mint slugs. Mint slugs, just think of the mint slugs as um, a product that's affordably available that you can use as a biomass. So really, I, when I say mint slugs, that's what we have available in our area. What you wanna do is find something that's economical in your area, and I would call it a biomass. So find some byproduct that people don't know what to do with and find a way to use it. And you can use leaves. Um, leaves have a tendency to bridge, and um, so you need to, there's some work that has to be done. You need to crush them up. If you run them through a shredder or something, that's a lot better. Um, it's nice, whatever you use, you gotta think of it as helping add air. And um, that's really important. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be getting into yard debris, and yard debris is usually available at your, what the, where they take garbage. Yeah, 
Well, in our area, it's, it's where they take the garbage and they put it in a pile and you can come get it and they just want to get it out of there. And so you can get it for free. Um, so if, if you're in a bigger city, bigger area, they have composting and different things, yes. But the thing about yard debris and mounding and um, is that yard debris can't be trusted. So you can't trust the yard debris. So I've got a way that I, I feel like that I got around it. You can decide for yourself, but I, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a good way. And um, so I just want to show you a couple pictures. This is the mounding. Um, this is, we actually have a trellis we put up with two wires so that you can support the blueberries. Not absolutely necessary, um, but if you're, if you're harvesting and if you're doing a U-pick area, you don't want those blueberries to be touching the ground. If an inspector comes by, if you get to that point, then you could, you could get yourself in trouble. You want to keep those up off the ground. So the, the wire is, is, an helpful, is a helpful thing. Um, so the yard debris. The yard debris is what is, is the yard debris mulching is, is really an important part of keeping your, your biome alive, to keep your biomass and everything working right. So what did I put in first? I put in compost. When I, before I planted, I put a little bit of compost, a little bit of sawdust, and we took the topsoil and we mounted it up. We plant, we plant in that, and then it's ideally, if you can afford it, you put a bark or something on top. Now, I'm just going to tell you, and this is, this is where you, you might want to take some notes on this, because it's a simple thing that's going to go by really fast. The weeds are a problem the third and fourth year. They take a little while, but the weeds are a problem the third and fourth year. While we're doing that, back to the mulch for yes. a sec. Yes, yes. It sounded like when you described the, the compost and the sawdust, you're actually mixing that into your soil, you're incorporating it, and then you're marking over that. Okay, so the best thing, the question is, is how, do I, how am I incorporating the compost and the sawdust? And I would say about two-thirds of the hill. The best thing is to build two-thirds of your hill that you're planning on building, then put the compost and sawdust on top of there, and then finish that last third, that last third of the hill. So you put it over top of the compost and the, and the, the manure. No ongoing that's that's no no ongoing yes there is there is an ongoing and the ongoing is in this order the first year you put the bark on that helps weed suppression that first year you're not going to have lots of weeds you're going to have some well it's going to vary according to where you're from and how how your soil was but you put bark on there that helps that helps tie up the nitrogen and helps do a lot of things to suppress the weeds the second year you're going to have some weeding to do the third year, you're going to say, what am I doing? I can't afford this. It's costing me too much. So the third year, we figured out that we needed to do something, and that's where we took and put weed mat on. And we put a weed mat. Weed mat is a product that is a mesh product, and you put it over top, and you, you tie it close to the berries, and it helps suppress the weeds. And it paid for itself the first year. 
But if you do it the third year, you won't realize, you won't realize wh- how much you're saving. You won't realize, I mean, you really won't, you won't realize the benefit. So if you listen to me, if you listen to me, you'll go, ah, oh, that wasn't really necessary. Is that basically like sort of it is, it is a soil cloth. Um, there's a lot of soil cloths that are sold out there that I think that if you use them, you need to put bark on top of them or they will just fall apart. Um, a weed mat is usually more substantial in my mind, in my definition anyway. Um, a weed mat is it's a weed product and it's, it's, it's designed to last about 10, 10 years, um, which in 10 years when you take it off, you're gonna wanna reapply the compost and the sawdust and and some bark probably I mean ideally ideally this is ideal and um, if you are wanting to grow smaller amounts or do it different there are variations um, keeping the microbial action alive is the most important thing and so this um, let me see where I'm at with my slides well weed mat after the third year weed, take it. Yeah, it pays for itself. I'm really, I really want to emphasize the fact that it pays for itself the fourth year because weeds take off. Where do you buy your weeds at? You know, most, guard, most places that are yard developers, people that, that work with yards, you can find it. Um, we, go, we go to what's called OVS. It's, a, it's an agricultural supply house. And it's they they get it by this you know by semi loads, and um, so that is that's a little bit difficult. But most if you look, there's all kinds of services around that supply for yards, and if you go in, and you can go and t- contact and talk to one of them, they will probably tell you where your local place is that you can um, you can get it. That's probably your best source. So, so weed mat is not a brand name. No weed. The question is weed mat. Is it a brand name? No. It's it's more of a general concept of and that's why there's a lot of different terms for it and there's you know Home Depot Costco has a product and it's it's a really you can rip it like this and um, I I, it just doesn't last to me it's not worth putting down it's quite a bit cheaper yes exactly you um there are paving places the, that have it where they put it underneath the gravel. Um, some of that stuff is pretty nice stuff, but see what you want is you want a product three feet or four feet wide is, a, is, is really the, so just so you know what you, when you go to ask, and that's what's usually hard to find is one that's three or four feet. Okay, since we're on this subject, if you're gonna use weed mat, don't cut it with scissors. Use a torch. Get a torch and use a torch and um, because it will unravel and you will have a mess. So you do not, do not cut it with scissors. When we put ours in at our school farm, we actually got a piece of six inch pipe and welded a, a little handle to it and a piece of chain for a spacer and we just went along and burned and burned. Good, good, yeah. Anything you can do to heat it, like he just described a way of creating a hot iron. So we, we use a torch inside. Okay, good, yeah. good. Um, just so you know, so he's creating a circle around each one. What I prefer is a slot. And what you do is you come with two three-foot sections. And the reason why you do this is because sometimes you have to remove the weed mat for mice, for nutrient needs. So 
What I like doing is with a three foot piece on each side, you bring them together and you have one that you tuck up right next close to it and the other one you come and you go, it overlaps by about two, three inches. And what you do is you take the torch and you just make a slot. If you do this early, it's really important, you only leave a space about this big. Okay. I didn't believe people when they told me this kind of thing when I first started. So as a commercial farmer, we're trying to machine pick and we want a tight base when we're machine picking. So it is different for you if you're not commercial picking because we want to come in with a machine, we want the closures to go underneath it, we want to be able to grab the berries and have them all fall into the catcher. But still, if you're weeding, if you get a big base like this, which is what I have, then you fight that for weeds. So I'm still saying the economics, even in a small patch, is worth tucking it up close, putting the weed mat straight on one side, and on the other side you overlap it by three inches, and you come up to the plant, you, you look at it, the plant's right there, you mark it, you go, and you, and you put it down, and then you put your staples in. It's just really nice, because then that controls your weeds, and it also controls your blueberry plant, and it limits the area that your blueberries are growing in, which makes it easier for almost everything from then on. Um, if you only have five or six plants, I'm not saying I would do it that way, but I still think I would leave a slot and hand grow everything in a row so it, it's more easily controlled. Um, then I might just take the weed mat and leave like a two or three inch um, strip between the two. Um, okay. So, yes? How far apart can the plants be? Um, how far apart can the plants be? Um, I struggle with that at first, and um, that's still a personal choice. If you, if you have a history of vigorous growth in your area, you can have them five, six feet apart. I put them two to three feet apart. But the reason I do that is for commercial, because you have the economics of getting it into production and getting it going and having it produce and produce well. So it's all according to what your needs are. I mean, you really don't have to grow them that close. If you, if you have a budget that's really tight, you can spread them apart and you can take the new limbs and you can put them down in the soil and start new ones beside there and just keep, and keep going. That's where if you put the weed mat about three or four inches and then grow them, you can fill, help fill it in. So for the weed mat, would you say put it down the first year? Or no, the year? I, would, I would do it the third or fourth year. And now, the reason, now we're going to, thank you for asking that question. Um, when would I put the weed mat, the reason I would put the weed mat down the third or fourth year is because the biomass that I talked about earlier, the yard debris that we all know has some iffy things about it. What you do is you plant, you, you build your mound, you put your bark on there, and the first year you get as much yard debris as you can and you put it in the walkway where it doesn't get in your plants. because I believe that whatever is on that can be killed with the sun, the water, and it can, the microbes. God created a world that he knew was going to be this evil, and if you give it enough time, it can take care of it. The world, God designed the world to take care of that. So what I do is I take that biomass, the yard debris that I get for almost nothing, and I put it in my pathway, and I irrigate it, and I let it set there, and I let it set there for three or four years. And then just before I put the weed mat on, I take and I push that up underneath the weed mat. 
And so it really gives you a nice environment. Um, I have one minute left. What is, what is our time frame? 10, 10, 15. Okay, good. So this is a picture of frost control. We use it during the winter. You, it, you, you can use water if you have a, a cold area with the blooms in the spring, but you can't let the water go off. Once you start watering, you can't stop until the freeze is way over, like way over till 10 o'clock in the morning. So it's, it's quite a process. If you don't have enough water, don't even consider it. Pruning. I wanted to, I really, it's, this is really important. <coughs> Write this in your notes, 30%. If you can't do it, I, I run into farmers all the time that won't do it and can't do it and they, it, they pay for it. Their production goes down. If you can't get 30, if you can't prune 30%, then you need to do something in, in your production. Okay, go ahead. When do you start well, it's all according to what, what the winter, when do I start pruning? Oh, and you start, okay, what year do you start pruning? You start pruning the first year. So you'll get the plants and you will actually trim them the first year. Um, the reason is, is because the roots can't usually handle the, the amount that's already up there. And so you want to prune stuff off. Now, some people believe very strongly that you cannot have any crop on there the first year. Um, I have not seen that to be true. I've done it both ways. I've, I've taken the crop off, I've left the crop on, but you do need to trim it and trim some of the weaker wood off and stimulate what you want to do. Is sometimes if you don't stimulate that, it will not put out new shoots. So you, you need to trim it the first year. And I would not say that the 30%, I'm talking about 30% is when you get a mature, a tr mature plant. Um, that first year, you got to keep that balance. If, if the sun, if there's not going to get enough leaf growth to stimulate anything, you, you got to be a little bit careful, not over prune it that first year. But you, you do want to make some small trims on it the first year. Do you prune it down to a fork, or do you prune it? You know, the, new the question is, is how. The question is, is really the what is your philosophy about what you want to grow and what do you want it to look like? really whether you realize it or not that's the question and so I can't answer that completely but with me I'm wanting something that is in line because I'm mechanically harvesting everything and so that's really important for me to have a fan type of a system at first so that it my my machine can come by and pick it so how many years do you have to it's all according to if you use the compost if you if you really use microbes and that's one of the things I'm going to get to. Um, this is called Organic Digester Plus. And um, I, I, have been, I have been so many places, looked for so many different products. And I, I, I go to the Tulare Ag Show. Um, it's a, the World Ag Show. I've, I've been to so many shows. I've talked to so many people about so many products. This is the best product I've found, and it's actually like three hours. It's produced three hours for me. I, I, and the only reason I discovered it is because my neighbor that grows potatoes, that is a conventional grower, was using it on his potatoes conventionally to stimulate, to stimulate the, the potato growth. So that's one of the things that I, that I discovered. And anyway, I'm going to... Could you repeat the name? Yes, I will. I will in just a second. Let me make sure, because that's... Um, 
I, I, I'm going to tell you more about this and a couple more things, but sprays, I am not really up on what you need to spray like with copper and that type of thing because I live in an area where we don't have mildew and the mildew is the mildew, the, the mold, all the, different, all the different types of things. We just don't have that in our area. So, but a copper spray, you can spray organically. You have to, if you're organic certified, you have to argue why you're spraying it and you have to be able to give evidence of why you needed to spray it, even, even with that. So, um, but I don't know some of those sprays. Unfortunately, we have not had to do that. We, I, have, I have growers that spray every year, just like everyone else does. They spray all the, all the copper sprays and they do everything because that's the way everyone has always done it. Um, so I'm not saying that it's not a good thing. I'm just saying I have d taken a different approach and a different route. And um, that's where we get back to this organic digester plus. Um, soil restor restoration, Soil Restoration LLC is the product. And um, that is, it, it is the website. Um, we actually brought some of this product with us and it will be over at the show. And um, I haven't been a dealer, but I just joined just on the way here, actually literally on the way here, just so I could bring this product because I do believe it so much. It is, no, you, you add it with water, you can put it into the drip. One of the reasons why I use the drip system is because I can put all, everything I do, I put it in through the drip. I inject it in through the drip. Um, what does this do? This is a micro, this brings your soil to life. And if, if, if I would tell you all the things that the person that sold it to me claimed it did, you would probably... It's, it's really similar to the concept of the fish tank, that you only need this one filter. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can attest to me that, that I would be probably thrown out of almost any lecture hall with agriculture. If I tell you some of the things that he claims it does, he claims it produces nitrogen out of the air. This is a really controversial thing, um, but I can tell you this. In, I, I'm not going to make that claim about it, but this is the claim I'm going to make. Zirkel, the big company I was talking about before, they use up to 300 pounds of nitrogen organically every year. I used 60 pounds per acre, per acre because I use this product. And so, and I got similar yields to them with this product and only 60 pounds and that is usually I, I, I used in the past a fish product that was an organic fish and this product and now I'm using a soy product and with this and I'm I'm somewhere between 30 and 60 pounds per acre of nitrogen is what I'm putting on well, this co the cost for this bottle is $47 online. Um, I think it's, you know, we, we, we will sell it for $40 um, at the show. Um, but I'm not here to sell stuff, but this is something that, that I thought, I called up the lady, I said, listen, you know, we're going to the show, you know, can I get some of this at a dealer's price? And so she gave me a discount. And so I brought it, I brought it, I brought it with me. So. Um, I'm not trying to push the product, but 
it is something that really meets the heart and soil philosophy that I have. And um, it really is something that um, I would highly recommend to you. Um, I'm, almost, I'm almost at a disadvantage because now I'm a dealer to even talk to you about it. <laughs> Go ahead. I guess my question changes the subject a little bit. How do you organically control insects? We have a lot of organic growers, and there's a product called Entrust. Have you used Entrust? Okay. When they start using Entrust for a pest, my growers tell me they use it almost every single day from then on. SWD is your biggest problem with blueberries, and I have not had it. SWD is a fly, and it's it's a fly that lays eggs in your blueberries and they hatch and they are, it's anyway, you take and you take your, your blueberries and you dip them in water and, um, and the, they'll, they'll come out, the, the, little, the little larva, yes. So it's not a very pleasant thing and um, as a grower, as a grower packer, we check for those. Um, the farmers do um, have um, tests that they put out to see if they have them and they monitor it. Um, we have not had that problem. So Entrust is something that you can use. It's an organic certified product. Uh, um, but once you start using it, usually you have, to, you have to go by the fact, I have a history and I have a problem. And that problem usually starts right about here and usually start before you see the problem, if you have that history, because you want to start ahead of time. So why do you think that you don't have the problem? Well, there's two reasons. A big reason is, is because I don't have as late of fruit, and most of the people that really have trouble have a, really, have a late fruit. And so what happens is, like, we, we actually did have it in our um, blackberries at one time, and um, the, our blackberries tend to be really late, and um, it, we had an infestation, but it didn't get into our blueberries um, because they prefer the blackberries. But I took the blackberries out because I didn't want it to end up spreading to my blueberries and, and becoming a problem. We now have some later varieties, so it could be a problem. It, it's something that we are concerned about. But um, I do believe that the, if you keep the soil alive and you feed the plant, the, the nutritional value that you need is also the nutri nutritional value that the plants need. And that nutritional value will help protect you against bugs. It will help protect you. Now, there are things that will come in that you may have to, you know, you may have to find an alternative to. And, and trust does help. It does help. Um, so that's... So last year, last year I came here. And um, the reason why we came last year is because I was wanting to do some greenhouse stuff. And... Um, this, we, it was actually successful. These are the tomatoes I picked day before yesterday. Out in our, and we have snow on everything. So we're in eastern Washington. Um, Yakima. No, Yakima. We're, we're actually in Wapato. This is the greenhouse we put in. And this was um, when I was here at this, at, at Agra a year ago. This is what it looked like probably right after we, right about the time we got back from Adagra. And um, so 
that is what it looks like now, and that's, I mean, that was, well, actually, actually that was taken a little bit. Now that the, the banana's way up high, it completely fills it, and um, so those are sweet potatoes. When to plant is, when to plant is not, if you can plant early fall, great. But the problem is, is you have, in my area, you have a, a possibility of freezing. And a new planting like that is, is not the best. So people will tell you stories, especially farmers. I'm coming from a farmer's perspective, and farmers will tell you all these stories of this great success story they had. They did this great and wonderful thing, but they were at great risk also. And so sometimes when you, so there, you can do things, you can break the rules if you know what you're doing, but if it's a bad year and you have a hard winter or you know, you know, something happens strange. So I tend to say in the spring, after the last frost, because you're, you're dealing with a new plant that just came out of a nursery, and you don't want to um, shock it. You don't want to wait till it's too hot. If you wait till it's too hot, then you're going to have a lot of stress on that plant. So you want to you want to be in the spring where it's cool, where the frost is over, but yet before the heat comes. And your pruning timing. Do you put them right after pruning? Do you put them right after the plant being right in the dormant? Completely dormant. Uh, ideally, because of the acres we have, we have to start as soon as all the leaves are off. Ideally, you would wait a little bit longer, but after all the leaves have fallen, you, you know, if the economics, which is in our situation, we have to start and just be able to go through because we want to get done before they start growing in the spring. But ideally, if you're going to just do it, you, I would do it you know, this time of year if, if, it, if, you have, if it's open. But if it gets too cold, all your wounds, all the wounds that you, that you make, they need time to heal. So you don't want to, if it's, if it's 20 below, you don't, want to, you don't want to be out there cutting. In fact, I, we, we tell our, our pruners that if it gets below 20, we prefer not to, not to do it. So. Kind of a double quick question. Um, so it's we already have, we actually started out with, when we met, um, a, a, a double-sided system that we can open whenever we want to. We haven't opened it yet, we're, this will be the third season. <coughs> How do you do, you, do you do soil microbial tests or how, how do you determine how often to open it up and add, add it? So I have done, the question is, 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 is how often do you do testing? You can do probes and testing without even removing it. Usually you can slide them into the side. There are places that I have sent that off to that um, have extensive lab reports. Um, I've spent a lot of money on those lab reports and I guess maybe I haven't managed it as well as I should have because I haven't got a lot of benefit out of them. It seems like that when I use a product and I keep the micro, if, I, if your biomass is there, if you add microbial, this, this is something I add two or three times a year. And by doing that, it's a little bit cheating in the sense that what I'm doing with this is I may not need, if, if economically you don't want to do it that much, you don't have to do it that much, but by doing it three times a year, if I did something like hurt my soil with even my fertilizer, let's just say I put a fertilizer on and the way I applied it, it came into the drip and it was too strong and it killed some of the microbes around there. What I do is I, I follow it up with, a, with an application of this. So in case I did something like that, 
I keep the microbial action alive. And when I was doing that, I had no problems. When I got distracted and I quit doing that with this product, then I started having some problems in those areas. So all I can say is because I have a history of using this product and a history of not using this product and a history of, I don't need that product. Everything's going really good and man, it looks, you know, they look great. I quit using it and I suffered from it. So it, 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 this product does help avoid having to deal with some of those things. If you, if you want to really manage it from a scientific point of view, you do those tests and then you decide what your inputs need to be. That is the normal philosophy of agriculture, is control all your inputs. My philosophy is more of a creationist and, and I want to control the inputs for, the, for feeding the soil. Um, ones you want to eat. There are so many new varieties right now that if, if you're going to get into it for a commercial reason, you want to actually get, find out what some of the newest, and they're these huge blueberries because they, that's what people are wanting right now. I'm just telling you, no matter whether you like it or not, if, if it's a big berry and it keeps and you want to sell it, that's what you want to look for. And Fall Creek Nursery, um, Oregon, what's it called, Terry? Blueberry. Oregon Blueberry. Those are a couple places that are good places to get them if you can get them to work with you. The problem is a lot of those places won't work with small growers. That's just the way it is. But, so, but still, if you get on their websites and you look at the newest varieties they have and read, they have bios on them, you read some of those bios and understand what you're trying to accomplish you can then apply. So Fall Creek is probably the best one because they have a really good flyer online. Go through and read those, read those bios and study and figure out what you want to accomplish with the blueberries. If you're just doing it for your home and you want something that's prolific and it produces a lot and isn't in a lot of trouble, I mean, so you got to read those things and, and really get it like, here, here first and then here. Yes, um, so the question is, is organic is selling blueberries and they're sour? The thing is, is most things are picked really green without the nutrition. And this is where we get into my a big bias I have is I went to a talk and I can't give you the quote right now, but the, the talk, the lady said that in 1945, spinach had 250 milligrams of iron and now it only has two. Nutritionally, we are not getting what we need, is my point. And it's because of the way we input. And we input what the plant needs instead of inputting and feeding the soil. So all, if the only thing you remember, feed the soil. Feed the soil is the philosophy. Over here and then back to here. I was just going to mention, Fall Creek will sell plants. Oh, they will. They will sell what? Fall Creek, he says, he says, Fall Creek will sell as many as 100 plants. So we have a question back here. Oh, as few as. Uh, we have a rabbit eye, and it's in cold area, and it took six years to adapt, <laughs> and we now have gotten production out of it for two. Um, yes, they do. Fall Creek has a whole, whole, whole bunch of rabbit eyes. So I have one last question I want you to an answer. 
Somebody can raise their hand and tell me, these are jams that we produce? What's the most important ingredient? Someone raise your hand and tell me what the most important ingredient is. Okay, we'll take one here. Fruit. Be more specific. Blueberries. This is, this is Marionberry jam, and this man said that the blueberries is the most important ingredient, and he's right. This is for you. I have a raspberry one. We'll give you that for trying. You were right, but okay. Just we do grow hazelnuts, and um, it's our newest venture. We grow. We have a hazelnut nursery, and we grow hazelnuts. And um, I do have a card. If you want one, um, you can come up and get it. And that I think I at this point we need to end. Thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.